blessed. We're just grateful one more week to be able to join back in the word. As you know, we are starting off um, this year. Um, and I, I saw the sermon, New Year, Same God, which is really re- revolving around our theme for the year, which is still God. You know, regardless of all the things that are happening, God is still God. He never changes. He is consistent. He is constant in our lives. So with that being said, we wanted to start this year um, reaffirming things that we know about our foundation, what our foundation should be as believers. And I thought there'll be no greater source to go to for that than to go to the Beatitudes, where Jesus is really giving us um, the perfect picture of what a Christian should look like. And so we're getting to the portion today when he says that we should be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so I want to really expound on that today and see how that um, affects us as Christians, but how it also affects the work that we do as Christians. So um, normally I, I start off just going right into the sermon, then the scripture. But as a good reminder of what the scripture is saying, just so we can really expound, I want to start with our text today. The title of today's sermon is Salt and Light, Salt and Light. And so we're starting today in Matthew chapter five, verse 13, Matthew chapter five, verse 13. He reads, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the richness of the word, Lord. It is amazing and quite immaculate to know that the sermon that I'm having to preach in a series, God, Jesus preached in one event. Um, How I long to to have the, the wherewithal to be able to preach like Jesus. But God, I, I just want to reiterate what he has already stated for us. There is no need for any new revelation, anything said, God, your word is sufficient. And we just want to expound on what you have told us through the annals of time so that we can know how we should live in this life. We thank you for the word. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Jesus continuing his sermon on the mount is making reference here to the worth and to the value of the Christian life. Now, it isn't uncommon in today's um, atmosphere, specifically in churches, to hear a sermon about your value or your worth. But to understand what Jesus means and to understand what he understands value and worth to be in the Christian life is to understand that our value and worth as Christians to God is our effectiveness in growing the kingdom of God. 
That is what determines your worth as a Christian. There are plenty of churches and ministries who pride themselves on programs and busyness and keeping their people occupied with small groups and all types of things. And naturally what happens is the more valuable you are to the church increases as you do more things in the church. So you jump from one small group to the next. You serve on every service project. You do all the things that you have to do. And that increases your merit and your standing and your value to those in the church. Not only that, but it increases the amount of pride you feel, regardless of what else you may be doing in your private life with God. Your source of pride becomes what you can do in front of others to keep up the standard of busyness that the church has set. Now, we have seen this even prominently within our own city that a lot of people will feel like if they're not doing something, then they're not really doing anything at all. And one of the most um, difficult things for a lot of people to do, even when they go to churches, is to sit and, and learn the word of God as it is exposited because they want to be doing something because we've been told that that is our value and worth in the body of Christ. And so people feel like if they aren't placed somewhere doing something, then they're not doing enough. That actually happens to be one of the biggest challenges to pastoring um, one as a young man, but also pastoring in this age is that so many people are unwilling to sit and learn the word of God, to hear the word of God and to grow and be sanctified in the word of God. We are not one of the churches that creates all these programs and things for people to do, because what we have found is that. All it does is keep people from getting bored. And then what we become is their source of activity, their source of entertainment, but not their source of spiritual growth. When I was in seminary, Dallas Willard, who has passed on, wrote this great book on discipleship. And one of the things that he noticed in that book was that small groups, things that we normally hear of, uh, small groups, gatherings, get togethers like that had proven to be very ineffective in growing people spiritually. Now, he referenced to Willow Creek Baptist Church, which is, which is in Chicago, formerly pastored by Bill Hobbles, who stepped down. But what they did and just know this is a multi thousand member church. They have multiple campuses. But they did something called a reveal study. Because they wanted to measure the actual spiritual growth of their people, not just their numerical growth. And what happened is, is that they found out that their small groups, their activities, their gatherings, all the things that they were doing, their programs to keep people busy based on their own self-study, they found out that it contributed very little to people growing spiritually at all. 
What they did, however, find out is that it was the things that we wouldn't expect, like the preaching of the word, one on one accountability and discipleship that had led to more spiritual growth. Because what they found is that in large churches, what they do is even though they minimize the church and put you in a small gathering, it's still too many people for you to have personal accountability to somebody else. And what happened naturally, they found, is that people fall in between the cracks of busyness, but not actually growing in God. And so it caused them to revert back to what they had founded the principles of the church to be, which is the exposition of the word of God, one on one accountability and discipleship and care for each individual person and not just the people as a whole. And what it had proven, one, it increased the value that those people had in the body of Christ because they knew specifically how God had gifted them to go make other disciples. It wasn't a catch all approach that says if you do these things, then you'll be a successful Christian. They found that their small groups had no positive impact on the spiritual growth of people. So we're listening today, we're reading today, and we see that Jesus says that we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we must really expound, one, the context that that had when he wrote it, because oftentimes what we do is we read naturally the things that we see in the Bible from our current modern-day context But in order to get the full breadth of what God is saying, we have to read this from his context in his day. So the first point for today is that you are to be salt that preserves. You are to be salt that preserves. Often thought just simply a reference here to taste and saltiness, Jesus is actually talking about largely the ability that they use salt for in order to preserve their food. Salt was as valuable as a commodity as anything because without salt, no matter how much food you could go get, that food was worth nothing if you could not preserve it. And they did not have the fancy refrigeration. They don't have the deep freezer like Chris's grandmother has. They simply had to have salt in order to preserve their food. And so there is a direct connection that I do think that Jesus is making here, which is not to be missed. And that connection is, is that if the salt wasn't preserving, if it wasn't preserving the meat, then Inevitably, what would happen to the meat? It would rot. And I actually do think that that is the communication that Jesus is expressing to us. Without the saving, salt-preserving life of the Christian, the world rots before our eyes. Without the effectiveness of us spreading the saltiness of the gospel, what the gospel entails and how it preserves lives. Yes, we can look at it generically, but I think we could also look at it very specifically. Look at what your life looked like apart from Jesus Christ. 
I think you could say it was certainly representative of dead, decaying meat. That was the value of my life. But then somehow through some incredible act of God, somebody shared with all of us the truth of the gospel and it preserved the dwindling life that was left. And it gave what was rotten and on the on the brink of decaying, it gave it value. It gave it meaning. That is our job as believers in the world is not to just stand on the sidelines and critique all that's going on in the world. But it is to be the preservation, the preservation of the gospel, to bring that to the people who are falling apart, who are dying, who are decaying before our eyes. That is what we have been called to do. And it is quite easy, especially with recent events, to get upset, to be angry, to be frustrated, to cry out for justice. But that isn't the life of the Christian. The Christian is to identify the rottenness of the world and go in and bring the only thing that can save the world. And that's the gospel. Jesus does not pull any punches, though, about the condition of the world. The world is, in fact, in a dead and decaying state before all of us. And it is hopeless without the truth of the gospel that we bring. But this is what often does happen. Far too often we give the world more value than it should have. Because our primary goal is not necessarily to convert people, but oftentimes our goal is to just get people in the church so they can get be good contributors and give us good money and good ties so that we can be well fed. Far too often that is the goal of the church. And so how do you do that? You don't tell the world that they're decaying, that they're dead, that they're dead in their sins, that they were born in their sins. You tell them convenient things like God hates just the sin and not the sinner. Which is not actually even in the Bible, nor is it biblical. Because God said, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. So even that is not even contextually true. Or God is not mad at you. God is not angry at you. He loves you. That part is true. But you know what the Bible says about God's attitude towards the wicked? He is angry with the wicked always. So even the very things that we take from the Bible and we we pick and choose what we want to say, not so people can grow spiritually, not so that we can give them the truth of the gospel, but so they could come in and make our church popular and big and financially prosperous and successful. That is the reason why the world has such false hope. And why there are so many people that we come encounter with every day who we can clearly see based off the fruit that is produced in their lives that they are not producing good fruit. But what do they say? I believe I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. I've done the things that other churches told me I had to do in order to be a Christian. 
And so they have this false hope about their standing with God. And so from our pulpits and from our preachers, I think there is a lack of conviction in our preaching. No, you don't have to be fire and brimstone. You don't have to do that because I don't think that's an accurate depiction of the gospel either. But I do think when we are presenting the gospel, we have to present it as balanced as Jesus would have presented it. The lack of conviction from the preaching, I think, is because there is a lack of understanding of real biblical truth. In other words, it is the blandness, the lack of saltiness that Jesus describes here of people who claim to be Christians. And that leads to the other point that Jesus has made is that the salt that has lost is saltiness and salt, which loses its saltiness, has lost its worth and its value to God. Because in that day, if you got salt and the salt did not have the ability to preserve, it was of no value to you. It could do nothing. In the same way, the gospel that we present in order to make many people comfortable lacks the saltiness of the truth and is incredibly bland today. And I think more than ever, there are more people who are falsely convinced that they are something that they are not, not because of just their own fault, but because of what we have said. In this time, salt that was no longer salty was good for nothing. But what Jesus is referencing here is far more than just taste. Now, how do we interpret the meaning of what salt is and why Jesus is making this reference? Because it's not that's not the only thing that salt does. Salt doesn't just preserve. What else does salt do? Salt stings. Salt stings. Salt in this time wasn't just used for food, not just for taste, but it was also used as a healing agent. It was common for people when they had wounds and scratches and scars. If they didn't know where all of them were, you know what they would do? They would take a salt bath. And when they took that salt bath, if they had wounds that they did not know about, they found out from that salt bath. Because when that salt got into that wound, it stung. Have you ever put anything like salt in your mouth and didn't know you had a cut in your mouth until you put that salt in your mouth? Now, it stings, but this is the interesting thing about salt. In the same way that they took that salt bath to discover the wound, they also took that salt bath to heal the wound. They also took that salt bath to prevent the wound from being infected. And I do think that that is what Jesus is getting us to see here, that the full picture of what it means to be salt is to be salt that preserves and gives life to that which is dead and decaying. But it also is to sting and it is also to heal. 
I mean, just recently I went to the dentist just so you know how modern medicine is. And I had a procedure done. And one of the recommendations that the dentist said was gargle your mouth with salt. And she said it will hurt, but it will heal as well. And so. The the object I think that Jesus is doing here is to give us a full picture. We see that salt preserves. We see that it steams. And we see that it healed. Now, the problem is, is that we have people who are presenting a partial understanding of the gospel. You have some people on one hand who only present a gospel that heals, but not one that stings. And if it's healing, but not stinging, it's not healing at all. But then this is the other thing. You have the other group of people who only present a gospel that stings, but it leaves people hopeless after hearing that truth. If we are to be the salt of the earth, we must present a gospel that while it stings the person that hears it, it gives them life where they were dying and it heals the places in which they were sick. And let me let, let me let you know, we were all sick with the same disease. And the greatest sickness that we all had, the great disease that we all have had, was sin. And the only thing that cures that disease is the truth of the gospel. But it can't be salt that's been watered down. Or it can't be salt that's overly potent. It must be salt that can do what God expects for us to do as those who bear the truth of the gospel. So we see that salt preserves. We see that salt stings and heals. But that is not the only point. The next point is salt that cleanses and purifies. One of the other uses for salt was when babies were born because they didn't have all the fancy ways of cleaning babies that we have. What they would do is they would run them through salt water to get all the gook and stuff that they get from having gone through the birth canal. That is how they cleansed and purified them was through a salt bath. The Jews that Jesus would have been teaching would have understood the purifying importance of what salt did. They would have totally understood what Jesus was saying because they understood what the value of salt was in that time. But the purifying importance even goes beyond just cleansing a child. Let me show you something in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. They were instructed to season their offerings, their sacrifices with salt, because that salt was symbolic of the purification that they needed to happen when the sacrifice for their sins was going forth. 
and they were offering it for their sins. Paul even evokes this and expands on it when we should share the gospel. Look at what he says in Colossians chapter four, verse five. Look at what he says in Colossians chapter four, verse five. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Look at this. Seasoned with salt. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's beautiful. He says, let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. What an amazing way to connect the impact of the meaning of what Jesus was saying when we share the gospel. Let your speech be seasoned with grace, with truth, with mercy, with conviction, with hope and with the gospel. Our final point, number four, was that. Salt was influential. Salt was influential. As I mentioned before, it was as valuable a commodity in their time as anything. It preserved, it healed, it stung. All of these things that we've talked about, the full representation of what Jesus communicated. Now, when I say that salt is influential, let me be clear I'm not saying it the way that we think many pastors and Christians think that we should be influencers and set the tone of the world and set the tone of the culture by being culturally relevant Christians. I'm not talking about that. That's not what it means to be influential. How are we to be influential? We are to be influential through our meekness, but also through our firmness. And those things are not diametrically opposed to each other. I think you really can't have one without the other. I want to show you what happened, though, when our president, Woodrow Wilson, had an encounter with pastor and evangelist D.L. Moody. And I want you to think about this and think about what people think about your life. He met with uh, D.L. Moody in a barbershop and he actually wrote this about him. A man had come quietly in upon the same errand as myself, a haircut, and sat in the next chair to me. Every word that he uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, showed a personal and vital interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware that I attended an evangelistic service just because Mr. Moody was in the next chair. I purposefully lingered after he left and noted the singular effect his visit had upon the, barber, the barbers in that shop. I felt that I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. What an amazing impact that D.L. Moody had. And Woodrow Wilson didn't even know exactly who he was. And he says he didn't come in boisterous. He didn't come in bold. But when he spoke, his words were so gracious. And they were seasoned with salt. 
that I felt like I had been to church because I had been around that man. When we are around people who don't know the gospel and even those who do, do they feel the tangible impact of us having been around? When we enter the darkest places in this world, are we carrying with us the flame that never goes out of the gospel? That shows people it was dark until that person came in, which, by the way, has nothing to do with us. It's about the Holy Spirit that we all claim to carry. Do people feel when we've entered a room? Do they feel when we've left? Do they feel like they have just had the closest encounter with God they could have because we were around? Are we bringing the light with us? That is the influence that we are called to have as Christians. Wherever Jesus went, no matter what people felt about him, he left an indelible mark on those people that they either, they either loved him or they hated him. That is what it means to have the impact of a Christian. Nobody's going to feel middle of the road with you. You should either bring them the stinging, healing truth of the gospel that leads them to repentance. And they'll love you for it. Or you bring the stealing, the stinging, healing truth of the gospel that reveals every cut and sin and nook and cranny that they didn't know about. And when you leave, they hate you. That is what is meant to be a Christian. But he also says that we are the light of the world. We are called to be the light to dark people in a dark world, we are to bring with them the flame of truth, which is the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we are the lights. We are the value of the world because we have what cannot be bought, what cannot be gained, what cannot be attained. And this is the difference in Jesus' comparisons of Salt and light. Salt is the subtle hidden effects, but the light is the light that is set on a hill that people know what you believe and what you stand for and you make a proclamation of it. But he says, how are people to see the light? Through your works. Through your good works. Now, I want you to understand what the value of light would have been here as well. Have you ever noticed that we typically work the, the general working hours in America are eight hours? You know, they used to be like 16 hours before in the early 1900s um, with labor unions. They set restrictions and they worked themselves down. Do you know why they worked so long? Because they had to work from sun up until sundown. Why? 
because they didn't have lights. They, not everybody had electricity. It wasn't ubiquitous like it is for us. And so they had to work while the light was available. And so when the light was over, when the light went down, they were done with work. That was the value of light. In the same way here, these people could only work, could only do things when the light, when the sun was shining. Which is why when the scripture says you must work while it is day for when night comes in that day, no man could work. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus saying is that even when the light goes away, we are to be the value and the light of the world. Even if the sun goes down, there is a blazing light that is coming out of us that cannot be quenched, that cannot be covered, that cannot be put out. That people who need light in order to live and move and operate will have to look to us who are carrying the light of the gospel. Who are running like the Olympian through the city, holding up the light until we reach our destination. We are to be the salt and the light of the world and to perform good works, not to be seen. But because we've been changed. When he says that men should see your good works and glorify your father, he doesn't say make a show out of them. But as James says, we should be so committed to doing the work of Jesus Christ that our works never end. And no matter where we may be, there will be somebody who sees what we are doing for Jesus Christ and wants to know why we do what we do. And that will open the door for us to say, let me tell you why I do what I do. The life of the Christian should be consumed with doing good. It's not that we will be accepted by God because of our good works. Our good works are the result of us being accepted by God. James says that religion that is pure is that which does good works produced by good faith. As Christians, we, like Jesus, should strive to leave an indelible mark on the lives of the people that we come in contact with. People should know when Christians show up. No one should ever be surprised when you tell them, I'm a Christian. They should say, I knew there was something different about you. They should feel the stinging, healing, preserving effects of having us around. Even those who are already believers, because our hope is to grow in one another, they should as well. I should feel the stinging, healing truth of my Christian brothers and sisters as they should feel it for me. But they should also see the shining light of the gospel's transforming work in our lives. That, dear friends, is what it means to be the salt of the earth and to be the light 
of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for another opportunity to share in the word of God. Lord, we are, we are so grateful that you have given us such rich truth, God, from even what seems to be so long ago. But God, you have given us this truth, not just for ourselves. You have given it to us so that we can have, through the gospel, a monumental impact on the lives of people who know you and who don't know you. And so, God, in this new year, can we do old stuff? God, can we have in our lives the Beatitudes, the nine attributes of what it looks like to be a Christian. God, can we effectively be the salt and the light that you have called us to be? God, can the truth of the gospel be found in us or have our lives been watered down with the blandness of false hope and false truth? God, our desire should be not to be men pleasers and women pleasers and world pleasers but our hope should be that you are pleased with the lives that we live God so God we ask you in the areas that we are not displaying the full truth of the gospel that this word will not only enlighten us, God, but be the impetus for everything that we do. God, even today, I pray if somebody was watching or listening and they don't know who you are, that, that they learn that you sent Jesus Christ on the cross, God. We were all born with a sin debt. And there was only one perfect sinless man who could pay that debt and absolve us from the punishment of our sins. And that was your son. And that through simply believing in that sacrificial death that we could be saved. Now, if there's somebody watching or here today who doesn't know what it means to be a Christian or has never heard the gospel in that way. God, that this would be the opportunity that they take to hear and know the truth. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, God, that in the midst of an ever-changing word, you are still God. You are still faithful. You are still reliable. And you are still able. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.